Good. That thing's cool. You know? Yeah, I feel like it's mine. It changed the game. <laughs> it does. It's... Hey gang, Wes Buck here, Drag Illustrated Magazine, checking in. It's uh, it's time for another episode of the podcast. I was going to start really laboring over dates and times and really painting vivid pictures of what exactly is going on, what day it is, what time of day it is, what the weather's like, but it felt like a lot of unnecessary work. Plus, I forgot the date. I wasn't sure off the top of my head, so I just decided to roll with it. So here we are. I really wanted to, before the season got much further along before we got to Gainesville or I not to shortchange any of the races that come before Gainesville, but it's always seemed to me like it really, the Gator nationals just kind of mean it like the, that the people are serious about their drag racing down in uh, Gainesville, Florida. And I've always kind of marked my season personally by that race. That's the race that kind of, I don't know, signifies to me that we are in motion. And I thought it was really important for me to get an episode of the podcast out talking about the NHRA season, kind of a little season preview type of thing. Some of the storylines that exist right now before we get to Gainesville. It was just really important. I thought, man, if I wait till Gainesville, I'll be on a whole different wavelength by then. I'll be at I'll. It's the Gators. There's all sorts of stuff. Like there will be a billion cars there, and Pro Mods will be running five fifties, and Pro Chargers will be breaking all the records, and there will be all these other things to talk about. So the things that I wanted to talk about that kind of happen in the off season and everything else, I need to get that out of the way. So here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right into it, man. When I look back, a couple things. First off, when I look at the start of the 2020 season, it gives me. It kind of made me look back and reflect on what I thought were the big happenings in 2019 and what were what were the high spots and, and what am I looking forward to? And based on what I saw in 2019, the things that I was really looking forward to in 2020, and this was kind of a punch in the stomach, I was really looking forward to just seeing what's next in for Steve Torrance, like seeing the way the 2019 season ended and all the drama and Pomona and the punching and the kicking and screaming and fussing and all the, the social media uh, drama that ensued following that very well publicized incident between Steven Torrance and Cameron Foray there in the shutdown area at Pomona, a staging situation kind kind of goes awry, tempers flare you know, Steve Torrance throws a punch or a kind of an open-handed thing, kind of um, Boss Rutten style, the open-hand palm strike, you know, which is actually a pretty devastating move. It, it, this part of your hand, you, you can hurt somebody. Really, you can't. Anyways, this whole thing blows up. People are losing their minds about this. I don't think... I've gotten some really interesting mail over the years. 15 years we've been doing Drag Illustrated Magazine. Shout out to my people. Shout out to the squad. They, uh, 15 years we've been doing this. I've got hate mail actually plastered on my wall right behind me. I've got a really saucy one from Shirley Muldowney that I'll never get rid of. Really saucy one. But we get a lot of correspondence. I feel very blessed that people seem to feel compelled to write us letters. We get handwritten letters, ha handwritten letters from prison, handwritten letters from Shirley Muldowney, truly. Uh, I get emails all the time, and I don't think there's ever been anything that's happened in 15 years that had people more stirred up than 
the Steve Torrance, Cameron Ferre drama that happened at the end of the season last year. So headed into 2020, man, did I feel somewhat robbed to not see Steve Torrance on the entry list at the season opening NHRA Winter Nationals in Pomona. To have had all that, to have all that, and then head into the new season, first race, everybody kind of fired up and not have some situation or not be able to kind of circle back around to that moment. That sucked. And I, I know that we've many people I've noticed in the media have kind of already moved on from the car count deal at Pomona at the at the season opening winter nationals. I have not. And I'm not one to to be negative. I'm not. I'm not one to lament bad things or, 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 or bummer type situations. But I do think some time has to be spent exploring this situation, thinking about it and thinking about how we can improve it for the future. When I look back at the season opener, I can't, and I understand that it may be, may be something of an anomaly, 13, 14 cars showing up in top fuel, but it still really raises my blood pressure. It makes me nervous. It makes me, it keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night because having your reigning champion, there's it, the problems that this identifies is first and foremost, having your reigning champion basically boycott the first race of the year. It's a problem because basically what you have is a champion who doesn't really care to be like a superstar or whatever, doesn't care to, isn't that invested in, in that responsibility, right? And that's a problem. And now why that is or how that situation has come to be, we can, we'll talk about that a little later, but it's definitely a problem because your champion, I don't know that anything's more important. It, having a champion that's outspoken, that's personable, that's charismatic, that is an ambassador for the sport, that's that's willing to do the interviews and go the extra mile. I mean, I, you can't tell me that Steve Torrance is the kind of guy right now that's going to be feel compelled to to go do a bunch of interviews for the NHRA. Hell, he doesn't want, he doesn't want, he barely wants to come to the race. That's a problem, folks, and that's something that we have to I look back on it and it's really it's a bummer of a deal because I actually see both. I see the Torrance family's position on this. I think, and obviously this is just my opinion, but based on the press release that was sent out with some quotes from the family, uh, primarily Steven's mother, um, th they felt it was hypocritical too. I've, I think everybody has been the, everybody involved has been embarrassed, has, uh, spoken with remorse about what happened, right? They, nobody liked the way that shook out, right? Nobody wanted to see a physical altercation. It's a bummer. These guys are professionals. They should be able to rise above it. However, I would argue in the heat of the moment, shit happens. The, for me, I understand that I had plenty of people tell me that, you know, these guys are role models and these guys should be better than that. These guys are human. These guys and gals are human beings and oftentimes what I have cried for, what I have begged for, is for them to show me they mean it. Show me how much it cares or how much you care. Show me how much this stuff matters to you. That's what I've been looking for from these guys. And I have to say, no matter how you feel about it, in that moment, 
when Steve Torrance went all sideways and swung on Cameron Ferre, like you, there was no doubt in my mind, this dude really wants to win this world championship. This dude is shook up. This dude is, this dude is a live wire. And I think that for all the people it turned off, I mean, it was a it was an electric moment. It was a moment that people are going to talk about for a long time, and it was a moment when you really got to see one of these drivers wear their heart on their shirt sleeve. And I understand maybe that was too far. Whatever. Maybe that was too much. Maybe that's too rich for your blood, and you don't like it, and your kids watch the broadcast, and you felt you know, bad for having to explain why these guys are putting their hands on each other. I understand that. I've always been one that I feel it's my responsibility as a parent to teach my kids right from wrong, not Fox Sports, not Steve Torrance. I understand that some of these guys, they, they are these guys and gals. They do become role models, right? But I mean, I know that I've, I've learned plenty from people of what not to do. I mean, it's, it's part of life, man. Not everybody's perfect. These are, we're an imperfect people. We are. So when that whole situation happened... I can't help but feel like there was there's some validity to the Torrance family's argument that it's hard for them to accept a a, a financial penalty, something like a twenty five thousand dollar fine, and have to go to like some uh, anger management program. All the while, the NHRA is using the altercation as a promotional tool. I understand that's a hypocritical kind of situation. I'm going to tell you this. I don't, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Like if someone hits someone on my TV show, it, it's going on TV. It, if y'all hit each other, we're going to put it on TV. I don't care if it makes me a hypocrite. I don't care if it makes me purple. I don't care. It's going on TV. So I can't really fault the NHRA for what they did using it as a promotional tool and running those highlights and talking about it ad nausea. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me at all, but I understand how that probably rubbed the Torrances a little wrong that we're going to be in trouble for this, right? We're going to be bad guys. We're going to get a fine. We're going to get, we're going to have to go to anger management, but you're going to use this as a promotional device. I understand how that rubbed them wrong, but if that's the rule, that's the rule. If that's, and here's, I think, what frustrates me the most about it. I can't help but feel like there would have been a way to sort that out before the season started. I don't know whose responsibility that is or who exactly was driving the bus on that or how, how you could find yourself in a situation where you're heading into the first race of the year and your champion's not there because of some bad blood bullshit i'm it's a bummer of a deal to me i find it disappointing and it really in 2019 at the beginning of the year last year january i always get these questions from people and it's great because people are like what do you think about drag racing right now how do you you know what do you think about sport where's the sport at how are the, what take what's the temperature on the sport i get that question a lot so last year i remember sitting at this very desk i thought to myself I'm going to go to the Winter Nationals. I hadn't been to the Winter Nationals in a long time, like I was saying a few minutes ago. I kind of start my NHRA season at the Gator Nationals. That's probably my favorite race. I think it is. I think it's my favorite race to go to. It's, it's one of my favorite races to go to. I like, I like everything about it. I don't really know why, but there's just something. It feels like you're at a drag race when you're at the Gator Nationals. I like that place. So, 
last year, I thought, you know what? I get this question all the time. I'm going to go to the Winter Nationals. I'm going to go to the season opener. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay at the hotel that everybody stays at there at the Fairplex, the Sheraton, which is a great hotel. I like that hotel. I'm going to go be a part of it so that I can get, I want to be able to answer that question fairly. I want to be there. I want to be at the start of the season. I want to take the collective temperature of the sport. And I remember like half a day in, I just could feel it as plain as day that there was a disconnect. And that sounds, I'm not calling anybody out, but I could just feel there was a disconnect. Everybody that I talked to was kind of squawking. Something was wrong or mad about something or did you hear about something? And it was, and it extended left to right, top to bottom. I mean, it, it excluded no one, no matter where you were. It just seemed like people were a little bit salty. And I remember going, man, this, what a crappy way to start the season. You got racers mad. Uh, there was a, I remember there was a team owner just sideways because his sponsor had gotten thrown off the starting line for not having the right credential. Um, the media people were bad. They're pissed because they've got to wear red vests now. Um, everybody was mad. Like, everybody was mad. And I thought, golly, this is not the way to start the year. We, you know, and I guess, thank God for those moments because without those moments, you don't have the opportunity to recover. You don't have the ability to, 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 to turn. You don't have the opportunity to, to pivot and improve. But I'm a big get off on the right foot kind of guy. Like those first couple steps are so important. And I look at that, that race in 2019, the season opening winter nationals. And I thought, I don't think you can get it more screwed up than that. It just felt disjointed. Like I said, from the fans to the, to the sponsors to, I still sense it today, a massive disconnect. And I don't know that I need any better example than my champion not showing up to the season opening race to believe that that, to prove that that disconnect still exists. Like communication, and this sounds like a self-help seminar, but communication's really important. I've been in plenty of situations where we are kind of over-communicating. Shout out to my wife, kind of over-communicating. It is a thing. It's possible to over-communicate. No question. Especially when text messaging is involved. But communication can cure a lot of ailments. And when I think about this whole situation and the massive ramifications that it had, when the Torrances don't turn up, uh, turns out Scott Palmer's not coming, Jeff Deal's not coming. There's a whole slew of people that aren't going to come because they are indirectly or directly associated with that team. So it was a huge kick in the balls for the NHRA not to have the Torrances on the property at the season opening Winter Nationals. And I understand that we they seem the NHRA has already rebounded, right? We're heading into the NHRA, uh, the second stop on the NHRA tour, heading to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, another fantastic event, Wild Horse Motorsports Park. Great facility, great group of people. And, and they already seem to have rebounded. I think there's 17 cars in top fuel, quality cars, 18 or 19 in, in funny car, and 20 at per usual pretty well uh, in pro stock. So maybe this, again, was an anomaly. But my opinion is that it does bring to light, and this is not a shot at anyone again. This is just a personal observation that I do feel like this is something that can't happen. 
it can't happen. And I want to rewind for a moment, moment. I do think that there are those that would argue, oh, you got to be careful with that communicating, right? Because what do they say? You can't let the inmates run the asylum. Agreed. I've managed racetracks. I've run races. I've run a business. I get it. I understand the perils of letting the, of letting the inmates run the asylum. And there's probably no one in the world that classifies as being in an, an inmate than drag racers. These people are crazy. All of us. We're mad. Absolutely bonkers. But communicating with those people and at least hearing them out and having some, some back and forth, having some sort of dialogue to try to get to a, a solution that suits everyone, there's no shame in that. And if it's not working, if it's not effective, if someone's not participating or it's clear that it's not going to go anywhere positive, pull the plug, get the shoots out and, and get yourself to a stop. But I do think that communication could have, I can't help but feel communication, some back and forth, some phone calls could have changed the outcome of that situation. And I'm telling you again, top fuel this is the top of our class. I watched a video, the top of our sport, right? I watched a video earlier today. It might've been yesterday. I can't remember, but I wrote this down because it was so impactful to me. I watched a video and it was an NHRA produced clip. It was called, um, you'll have to look this up on YouTube. It's pretty good. It's not surprisingly hosted by Brian loans and it's called uh, nitro hot tub time machine. And it's like a two minute video and they look back on an old thing that happened in drag racing. And in this particular clip, Brian Loans, they, they flash back to the NH, the final round of Top Fuel and Funny Car at the 1990 NHRA Winter Nationals, Pomona, California. And Steve Evans, God rest his soul, the late Steve Evans, veteran voice of the, of the NHRA, uh, I would argue one of the most iconic voices in sports, just legendary voice of drag racing. He comes over the, the airwaves and he, he refers to top fuel as the Kings of drag racing, man. They are like, they are the Kings. These are the cars, right? If you, I would argue that if you ask some uninitiated, no, nothing casual person walking down the street to, to describe to you a drag racing vehicle, they're going to like look up. They're going to go oh, like long, skinny, big wing, big tires on the back, little bitty tires on the front. Right. I mean, that is the cartoon race car. That's just what people think about these. This is the Kings. Listen to Steve Evans. He said it. The Kings of drag racing. We mustn't find ourselves in a situation where we have a shortage of these cars. This is the highest level. The absolute highest level, the quickest and fastest cars on the planet Earth, we mustn't find ourselves in a situation where we don't have enough of them. And I really believe that no matter whether there's 17 cars that show up in Phoenix, maybe there's 20 top fuel cars that show up in Gainesville, I don't care. I'm, what I'm saying is that we need to be working towards not preservation, but growth. I feel like there's kind of a there's a, there's a desperation. Along with that disconnect comes a certain level of desperation. I feel it. I feel it across the board, a sense of desperation. How are we going to fix this? How do we stop the bleeding? How do we get these guys to come back? And I think it, start, 
I think it's time to start asking ourselves some really tough questions, right? Like, I think it's time to, to start look at doing whatever it takes to position Top Fuel, remember, the kings of drag racing, not to, to survive, but to grow. And I used to be a, a big believer and fan of Funny Car, and I still am, don't get me wrong. I love all this stuff, that, all of it. I like it all. I used to be a big believer in Funny Car because, you know, there's a logo on the front you can identify with. Ford, Chevy, Dodge, Toyota, what have you. But based on that example I just gave about how a little kid or I mean, what do they give? Away, what do they sell to kids? What do they sell on the midway? They sell toy top fuel dragsters. Like that's just if there's a car that we can grow on the back of, I, I do think that top fuels it. I'm going to make an argument for, for door slammer racing shocker, but just speaking specifically about top fuel and the way this, the sport is currently positioned. I really feel that it is time to start the conversation. And I know some of this is already happening, but I think it maybe needs to happen out in public. I think it needs to be a little bit more well-known that discussions are being had. Like, what can we do? Is it less races? I mean, figure it out. I understand that there is a phenomenal example of the power of less races in pro stock. In a couple of years ago, the NHRA announced that they'd be reducing the schedule for NHRA pro stock from 24 races to 18 races. And it had an immediate impact on the class. You had guys like Bo Butner who just won a world championship and had and followed it up with an announcement that he was going to retire return because that difference from 24 to 18 races just takes it from a unimaginable burden for a business owner or for someone who isn't necessarily a, you know, pro drag racer who literally all they do is drag race it makes it relatively manageable 18 races is still a ton of drag racing and i would argue that that's probably still too much but immediately pro stock turned around immediately we went from a class that everybody was saying its days were numbered to what i would argue as the most stable category in professional drag racing there's no doubt pro stock is the most stable class in professional drag racing so let's make a tough decision. Do I want to make those phone calls? Do I, do I want to call any of those tracks and tell them that they're about to be in a rotation? No, that's going to probably suck for somebody. Hopefully not me. I guess the phone rings. I'll make. We're defined by tough decisions, right? That's what it feels like to me. I mean, those are the kind of decisions that can define a generation, like the decision to go to war, right? The decision to run for office, the, the decision to, can't, to, to shorten the schedule. I mean, these are tough decisions, but I think there may be a time when we look back and go, man, that was brutal. Do you remember how upset those people were there? Do you remember how the big deal that guy made on social media because of that? I mean, it's going to happen. And I, I would rather have it happen by choice than by force, right? I would rather be ahead of it and try to do something positive than be in a reactive situation, which we seem to be in a lot, right? I would rather be making those tough decisions now than scrambling the, to make them in a do or die moment. And I, 
I don't necessarily have all the answers for that. I'm not saying that any of this is the answer. It's my opinion, which is the whole point of this podcast is for me to spout off my opinion. It's loads of fun. I enjoy it. I hope you do too. And I'm not saying that reducing the schedule is singularly the thing that will fix everything. But I do believe that it, that it has the potential to make a positive impact. And I mean, we, at the end of the day, we have to find a way to reduce the financial burden of running one of these cars. And I think that, you know, there's obviously time to work with these teams. We have to be asking these crew chiefs, asking these team owners, how can we curtail any of the spending that's going on out here? I don't know, but I see a lot of shit getting blown up. Like I see a ton of stuff on fire. Um, a ton of stuff in dumpsters after the event. I see, I hear stories of the amount of things that get scrapped. Dear Lord, that seems to be a good starting place, right? Like, how can we stop? How can we curtail some of the explosions and things bursting into flames? It seems like it's happening a lot. And I will, it's directly correlated with the fact that every time we have a race, it seems like the record is being reset. And you talk about letting the inmates run the asylum. I mean, let me get this straight. We're not going to listen to anybody about a rule or whatever, or an appeal to a penalty or punishment from last year. We're not going to let the inmates run the asylum, right? But we're going to let these guys tell us that they can't slow these cars down and that they want to run them this fast and that this is how they want to do it because they want to run 340 miles an hour, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it feels like that's an argument that we're only using when it's convenient. It's time to try to find a way. We, we have to slow these cars down and in turn, make them more affordable to run. And I don't think you're ever going to make it affordable or like cheap or a budget deal, budget friendly. You're never going to make it that. It's never going to be Aldi's. Shout out to Aldi's. It's not going to be Aldi's. Top Fuel Racing is not, it's more like Trader Joe's. You know what I mean? It's not going to be Aldi's. But I think a guy can dream, right? We can at least work that direction. You know what I mean? And that's, that's where I'm at with this. And I just, I don't know that enough conversations are being had about how we can try to, the thing that I hear the most frequently from top fuel racers, like the, the ones that are out there beating the brush, trying to get sponsors, trying to, trying to live the dream. The thing that I hear the most from people racing top fuel that aren't endlessly wealthy, and even from the people that are endlessly wealthy, is that it takes more money to run a nitro team than can be reasonably asked for of a sponsor in exchange for the visibility and exposure generated by a typical team on the NHRA national event trail and by a way of the Fox sports broadcast. Like it takes three, $4 million to run a top fuel team and getting a corporate sponsor to shell out that kind of bread in 2020 is getting hard. I don't know that it's being done. That's why even in NASCAR across the board, you're seeing all these piecemeal kind of sponsorships. You're seeing one sponsor on the side of a car on the door for eight races. And then that sponsor transitions to the front fender and a new sponsor goes on the door. You're seeing all these piecemeal programs because the cost is just so high. And when I look at drag racing, I'm thinking to myself, like how can we reduce 
find ways to make it cost effective because you want to talk about and it's again you you throwing a word words around like affordable cost effective when you're talking about drag racing is is laughable like i'm not stupid i mean it's it's funny right but you want to talk about a way to make something grow give people the the opportunity to make money doing it like if you give people the opportunity to make money drag racing some well-to-do businessman if you give him the opportunity to field a team for profit that will grow the sport the problem right now is that we don't have enough philanthropist drag racing team owners who are willing to just annihilate their net worth going drag racing there's just not that many of them right guys like kenny bernstein and john forrest these don schumacher these guys made money drag racing the reason they're gone i mean i mean not entirely but a lot of the reason those guys they made money drag racing like just for the sake of round numbers don perdome got two million dollars four million dollars or whatever from miller light right to run his top fuel team he kept a million of it pocketed it maybe more guaranteed that's what was going on with kenny bernstein and budweiser for 30 years that's why he like owns a castle in southern california right that's the reason john force owns a castle in southern california is because castrol for 30 years he made money that was a profitable endeavor for john force right we have to add i mean obviously scaled down it doesn't have to be that significant but if you could give guys and gals excuse me the opportunity to maybe run a race team at a profit or or have it be a profit center for them that's that's the game that's the real difference like that's the real thing that that's what runs these guys out of the sport. And right now we are so reliant on just super wealthy people that are thrill seekers or have an undying passion for the sport of drag racing. That's not a strategy for success. Hoping that another Alexis DeJoria manifests in front of us somewhere. Like, thank God for the Alexis DeJorius. Thank God for the Connie Colettas and the Don Schumachers and the so ons and the, the, the Mike Salinas's and the people that are just hardcore drag racers that are going to spend money and they're going to go do this stuff. Thank God for those people. But that's not a growth plan. Like, that's not a strategy for success. Like, my a strategy for success would be going to those people and finding, like, how much money are you able to raise? How much, what is the average amount of money that you're able to raise for a sponsorship for one of these cars? How can we find a way to, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of things you have to tackle. You have to try to find a way to get more exposure. How can we increase our exposure? How can we find unique ways to tell our story? How can we gain exposure via the World Wide web and social media? How can we, but all those things in conjunction with an effort to reduce costs, curtail spending and make it cost effective. I, you guys knew, you knew there'd be a way some here in here for me to talk about pro stock and pro mod. I had a conversation. It's, uh, it's been about a month ago. Yeah. With Paul Lee. Paul Lee is a NHRA nitro funny car team owner. He is a Don Schumacher. He is a, um, what is the exact terminology for this? I think it's a Don Schumacher racing satellite car. He runs his race team out of Don Schumacher shop in Brownsburg, uh, Indiana. He has access to like the Don Schumacher 
think tank and brain trust and and shop and so on and so forth. But it's an independent team. He's a he's a he's his own operation, right? I had the 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 opportunity, the absolute pleasure of an opportunity to break bread with Paul Lee a few weeks ago in Southern California. I was in Orange County, California for a conference, one of my favorite conferences that go on. SEMA puts this on. It's called MPMC. Not a lot of people know about this conference, which always surprises me. The Motorsports Parts Manufacturers Council. I think I talk about this this event publicly more than anyone alive. I didn't know about it up until about 10 years ago or thereabouts. Incredible event. Real who's who of the automotive aftermarket from, I mean, everyone from like Holly Performance Parts to Chevrolet to Ford and Dodge to... Uh, Mickey Thompson. I mean, it's a real incredible group of people and they all get together to basically kind of brainstorm ideas of how everyone can help one another. Of course, not surprisingly, McLeod and FTI, two companies owned by Paul Lee based out of Southern California, or at least McLeod is, uh, FTI is out of Florida, recently acquired by Paul Lee and his group. They, uh, I, I got the opportunity to break bread with him. I went to Javier's those who know me know that it's probably my, one of my favorite restaurants in the world. The Javier's in Newport Beach, California is a, an upscale Mexican restaurant. Skinny margarita that is to die for. There's also a location inside the Aria in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is equally good. It, it's inside a casino, so it doesn't have quite the... It's obviously a Mexican restaurant, and you can tell you're at a Mexican restaurant. But the one in Newport Beach, just off the water... Whew, it's, it's, it's a spot right there. That's a spot. Anyways, I go to dinner with Paul Lee and he said this thing to me and I thought it was really interesting. He doesn't like to use the word problem. Doesn't use it. Like it's not in his vocabulary. He calls problems opportunities. And I just, we were talking about something and he was talking about a growth strategy for one of his businesses. And he said, well, one of the problems he goes, well, wait, I don't use that word one of the opportunities. And I thought, man, what a powerful way to look at things. And I've, it's really stuck with me. And Paul, I'm, I'm lucky to say Paul's become a good friend and he's uh, an incredible guy. He's a super, super sharp businessman. But we were just talking about drag racing, growth strategies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he made mention of this of this, this opportunity, this, this way he phrases things and the way he frames situations such as this. And I thought about, I'd love to explore the, the topic of, of changing top fuel and altering nitro racing, however it needs to be altered. And I'm not here to say that I have all the answers. I am here to say that someone does, that, that they're out there, that we can find them. I, I truly believe that collectively, there are enough smart people in this sector. It, drag racing is comprised of self-starters and do-it-yourselfers and businessmen and entrepreneurs and problem solvers that there's no doubt in my mind that forward progress can be made. But when I look at the opportunity here, I think the real opportunity is for pro-stock and pro mod. And I'm going to say pro stock. It's no secret that I'm probably the biggest pro mod fanboy on the planet. Like, I know, if I had a sticker, if I had one of them badges, I'd put it on. Pro mod fanboy. I mean, guilty as charged. I'll, I'll wear it. But when I look for the opportunity in this time of 
change for nitro racing. And during this kind of moment, when I look at pro stock, I'm going big opportunity. I mean, I would, if I were in a position to do so, my answer would be to double or triple down on what's working and growing and what hasn't become so impossibly expensive that it takes, takes, you know, an aforementioned thrill seeking billionaire or super fan to add a car to the entry list classes like pro stock and pro mod. I mean, and, and I've, I've argued this a lot, the street outlaws discovery channels, beloved street outlaws and all the different incarnations of that show provide me all the proof I need to see and truly believe. I mean, I truly believe that pro stock drag racing, pro mod drag racing are more than exciting enough to when driven by colorful characters that are promoted properly to draw a crowd, to, to generate headlines, to, to be viewed by millions. I truly believe it. And I will piggyback on that statement and I don't want to get the guy in trouble, so I'm not going to mention him, but I'm going to say a, Young, good-looking, clean-cut, all-American kid who races in fast door slammer drag racing at a pro level recently told me that he was in the final negotiations with a major brand. A, a I'm talking like Fortune 100 big company to be involved with his race program. And I ask him this question. I go... Hey man, are they excited about pro stock or, or top? I'm, I'm going to give this away. Are they excited about the class you're racing? You know, are they, are they excited about the type of racing you're going to do? And he looked at me plainly and he goes, they don't care. They don't care. I'm like, what? He goes, they don't care. They don't care what I do. As long as I'm out like professional drag racing, do, you know, and on a visible stage, they don't care. And I thought, that's interesting. He goes, yeah, they're more interested in being, they're more interested in me. Like what I choose to drive, it's secondary to being involved with me and kind of using and using me as a promotional platform. That said, if I'm, if I'm Joe top fuel racer or Jan top fuel racer, and I'm able to routinely go out and sell sponsorship to race a limited top fuel schedule. I'm not so sure that I want to take that money to a top flight pro stock team and keep a little bit of it. I talked to Richard Freeman the other day and I asked him, this is what I asked him. I said, I want the straight dirt on pro stock finance. Like I want, I want the nuts and bolts. Send me, send me a PL. I didn't say that. I just said, hey, can you give me a rough idea of what, like what it takes? I mean, maybe I'm interested, right? And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not bashful about it. And that's no shocker for anybody that knows Richard. He basically explained to me, and maybe I do want to do it. I don't know. That elite motorsports will basically put anyone in a championship contending pro stock car, 18 races for $750,000. So that's like 40 grand a race. All you do is show up with your helmet and fire suit. So 
you, you figure you're going to have some travel expenses. Say you spend another 50 and that's pretty easy, right? You're going to spend another 50,000. So now you're at like $800,000 to go race for a championship at or near the highest level of drag racing. We already have it. It's already proven that you don't have to be racing top fuel or funny car to get a sponsor. You don't. Megan Meyer, mind you, racing a fuel dragster, a sportsman category, has done fairly well for herself in securing marketing partners. So it's possible to raise money. It, it's possible to raise money outside of top fuel and funny car. I understand there may be an argument that, that's, that those are the most visible classes. I'm just saying, think about this. So if you have the opportunity to maybe go spend $800,000 to go race for a championship, sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But if I'm Leah Pritchett, right, and say I'm maybe able to come up with, maybe I've had the ability to come up with a million dollars, right, over the course of the last few years. I'm fairly certain I'd be grabbing gears in a pro stock car tomorrow. I'd take my million dollars, give 800 of it to elite motorsports, and they don't take it all at once, right? I mean, you're paying on a quarterly deal or a monthly deal or whatever, and I'm putting 200 grand in my pocket. Do you know what I mean? Because there's plenty of examples of guys that are sponsored and, it, and they don't raise top fuel. You don't have to go... I understand the allure of running the quickest and fastest cars, and I understand that might add to your resume or make your deck a little more sexy or whatever. But the fact is, a lot of these companies don't care. They don't care. They want you to be competitive. They want you to be out running at the front, contending for a championship in the mix, and they want you to be very visible during the pro along the way. And there's a lot of ways to be visible in 2020. Not just Fox Sports. And I do want to, you know, backtrack here. I was talking to Brian Loans the other day, and he told me that over a million people tuned in, 1.13 million people tuned in to the Fox Sports, or the Fox Sports 1 broadcast of the NHRA Winter Nationals a couple weeks ago. That seems like a big number. That seems like a lot of people paying attention. That's fantastic. And, I, and apparently that number goes to like 1.75 million to like 2 million whenever NHRA Drag Racing's on Big Fox, the, the, the network station. So I do believe that between the visibility that you're able to generate in this YouTube, Facebook, Instagram age, coupled with the opportunity to be on major broadcast television like that, I don't know. If I'm NHRA, I'm wondering if I'm not going, hey, pro stocks where we got 20, 20 plus cars every race, we got a slew of fresh faces, we got Erica and our reigning champions, a girl from Texas, right? I mean, we got Alex Laughlin, we got legends, Greg Anderson, Jason Line, Jeg Coughlin, we got some, some new young guys coming up, we got some, uh, the Quadra family, we got some uh, diversity, we got boys, girls, I mean, there's a lot of storylines there, man, and if that's where you're, if that's where a, a lump sum of your racers are, I just don't understand why you wouldn't pour fuel on that fire. Like, if I was in an NHRA production meeting headed into the rest of the season. They're one race in or whatever, a couple races in. How can we put more eyeballs on Pro Stock? It's our most stable class. 
it's it's great racing. Great racing. They are extremely hard cars to drive. They look like cars. There's a connection to Detroit, right? I mean, that was something that we talked about early on about how the 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 allure of pro stock or excuse me, funny car racing to some extent is the fact that there's a logo on the front. There's a brand associated with it. With pro stock, you've got Mustangs and Camaros. It's fantastic, right? There's a lot to work with in pro stock and there's an abundance of them. And I just, the, the racing is close. The cars are hard to drive. There's a cast of colorful characters headed into the, the rest of 2020. I truly believe this is a class that could carry the sport of drag racing. It really could. There's, there's big opportunity there, but it takes effort. It's not going to happen on its own. That's absolutely not going to happen on its own. We have to get behind it and drive that bus and push that. And there, it's the responsibility of the, the, the powers that be to, to be finding creative ways to tell this story and be finding creative ways to shine a light on these guys and gals and turn them into household names. And I, I look back on the 2019 season and the, the most powerful moment the most significant moment of the whole mother, the whole thing, Erica Enders, Greg Anderson, Jason line, excuse me, Erica Enders, Greg Anderson, first round at Pomona, the first round, the first round. I mean, tell me another time in drag racing history where the first round had that much significance. There's a lot of memorable final rounds, right? There's tons of them. But there aren't that many memorable first rounds. That's a drag racing moment that will go down in history needing only first names. Erica V. Greg. It's going to be like, that should be a movie. I mean, it was that significant. So if you take that and add that into the conversation that we're having right now, if you look at what you have to work with, knowing the moment that Pro Stock produced for you last year, Again, there's no problem ahead of us. Nothing but opportunity. Cars that look like cars. Cars that are driven, that are not entirely controlled by electronics and timers and pneumatic happenings, right? Cars that, the coolest thing about Pro Stock that I have seen over the course of the last couple of years is that the driver can make all the difference. Literally. You can take a car Prime example, the NHRA season open, and I don't think this gentleman will be upset with me telling this story because it's true. He told it to me, and it really, it got me. Marty Robertson. Marty Robertson is a very well-known outlaw drag racer based out of Fort Worth, Texas. He's become a friend of mine. Great guy. He's, he's done a lot of racing on the outlaw eighth mile, made the decision in late 2019 to sell all of his outlaw stuff to kind of divest from the sport of drag racing and focus his efforts on a lifelong dream of racing NHRA pro stock. He signs on to do the full pull with elite motorsports partners with Richard Freeman to field a car at all 18 NHRA national events in 2020. Huge commitment, massive deal. Goes test the car early in 2020, goes to Bradenton, Florida. Instant success. Massively gets in the car. I believe Erica Enders went a 653. Greg Anderson, excuse me, um, Alex Laughlin went a 653. Aaron Stanfield went a 653. In testing, and Marty went a 654. First time racing a pro stock car. That's how good of a job he did behind the wheel. Really impressive. And I will admit, 
I didn't know that he would do that well. I knew Marty was able-bodied. I knew that he was he was tuned in. He took it seriously. He had, I believe, the intangibles to be successful in drag racing with what I'd been around him. And I was really happy for him when I got those results, when I when the phone rang and I was hearing that he was right on par with the rest of the team. And that's a that's a group of hitters, son. Like, that's a group that it would be very intimidating to go get your feet wet with. Now, granted, there may be a little comfort knowing that you have that much knowledge and experience around you, but you can't deny that it would be pretty intimidating, right? Jed Coughlin, Erica Enders. I mean, these are some real vets, championship caliber, championship winning racers. And he went out there and he held his own. Interesting. Fast forward a few weeks to the season opening NHRA national event in, in uh, Pomona, California. Marty goes out there, doesn't qualify. Same car. It's not like they took the motor out of it, right? It's not like they, you know, sabotaged it. Same car, same setup. Everybody else gets in the show. But guess what? Marty got a little caught up in the moment. He told me. He goes, man, I'm looking around. I'm putting all this pressure on myself to be perfect. Greg Anderson's over there. Jed Coughlin's over there. Erica Enders is over there. Bo Butner's over there. All these racers, all these guys that I've looked up to and aspired to, to race against, they're all here and I'm racing them. This is crazy. Got, got kind of lost in it. Got wrapped up in it. And, it. and it caused him to struggle a little bit over the course of the weekend. No big deal. He'll be back. I guarantee you I would bet everything I own that he'll qualify from here on out. He'll be in the mix. He's, he's, he's that guy. No doubt in my mind. But the point is, how come that story's not getting told? Nerves caused that car not to qualify. Nerves. What an amazing story, right? Here's a car that is every bit as competitive as any other out here, right? But because the driver was a little shook up and in his own head, he didn't make the show. That's the story that needs to be told. That's a story that needs to be told. I don't believe that completely exists in any other category of drag racing. These cars are so fine-tuned, especially when you look at Top Fuel and Funny Car. These cars are so fine-tuned that while the driver is obviously providing input, the driver is obviously doing a lot, and I'm not shortchanging the courage that it takes to drive them. You can't shortchange it. I've talked about this so much it hurts. My, the, the thing that I have the most respect for when it comes to Top Fuel and Funny Car is the balls it takes to do it. Just that, the balls it takes to do it. But I would argue that you can get in one of those cars, get that bad boy pointed straight, and with an Alan Johnson or a Brian Houston or uh, 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 Aaron Brooks, Jason McCullough, uh, all these top fuel super geniuses. You can get one of those guys, and they're gonna they're gonna get you in the show. The cars, you know, they're gonna get you in the show, right? And I'm not saying they're passengers, and I'm sure some people are gonna take that wrong. I'm just trying to compare it to pro stock when it is literally if you short chain, if you pull second gear too soon, the whole run is ruined. And you're, being, you're pulling second gear in nine-tenths of a second. You know what happened in Pro Mod? And this is another thing someone's going to get pissed about. But you know what happened in Pro Mod whenever they needed to make the one-two gear change in nine-tenths of a second? Put automatic shifters in them. 
because most of the guys couldn't do it. And that's not a lie. That's no bullshit. That's a real thing. When, the, when it came time to make that one-two gear shift in nine-tenths of a second or less, put an automatic shifter in that thing, right? Not the case in pro stock. And I just think that if somebody would start spending the time necessary to tell these stories, to, to explore the difficulties, not of how the clutch works, because no one cares. I do. A handful of you might. But the casual fan doesn't care how they don't. You, there's, it's, you're preaching to the choir. But you start talking about some of the intricacies of the human part of it. How much pressure is on the human? How much is required by the guy or gal behind the wheel? Those are stories that are interesting. You start talking about how ghosts or nerves or whatever uh, thoughts of, 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 of screw-ups of yesteryear or whatever start rattling around in your head and it costs you a round win or whatever. Those are the stories that people are drawn to. And when I look at the NHRA headed here into the rest of 2020, I don't see problems. I see opportunities. I see some tough decisions that are going to have to be made. I definitely think there's, we're all lying to ourselves if we don't believe there's room for improvement. There is. There's room for improvement. There always is. And I think that there's a group of people out here. It's not me. And it's not, it's, but there's a group of people that could get together and change the course of the of history, the, the change, the course of drag racing. And I do think it starts with communication. It starts with working together and it starts with having an open mind and it's going to end with making some tough decisions. But the sport of drag racing, as I see it in 2020, I, I think we're, we're upon, we're facing a time of necessary change. I think some things are going to have to change. I think everybody knows it. No one wants to admit it. Everybody knows it. Some things are going to have to change, but no one wants to admit it. And change sucks. Sucks for everybody. But I do think that while there are some, some struggles ahead, right, there are tremendous opportunity. And I really see one of the high spots in drag racing right now. And there's, I have a lot more to say about this. And I, I want to spend a lot of time talking about pro mod and the future of pro modified drag racing, which everyone knows is near, near and dear to my heart some of the other classes of drag racing that I think have um, a ton of promise, but I really feel if I'm in HRA, how can I pour fuel on the fire of pro stock here in 2020? It's it, every piece of the puzzles there. So that's what's up. That's what's up. <laughs>